you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember about 10 years ago, early on in the history of City on a Hill. In fact, I think we might still have been called Docklands Church at this point. Uh, We did a series on Song of Solomon, a book in the Old Testament. Uh, We were meeting in a pub at the time, the top floor of James Squire Brewhouse. And and sometimes at our evening services, we would have visitors uh, come and join us, wandering up from the bar downstairs. One night, my wife Ivana was on welcoming and a slightly inebriated patron of the pub came upstairs. And seeing all these people there, he, he just asked us, what's going on up here? Uh, to which my wife replied, well, we're, we're a church. We're, we're having a church service, actually. Uh, now, he was very surprised by this a church in a pub. It just seemed really strange to him. But he was intrigued. Well, okay, then what, what are you talking about? And so Ivana says, ah, we're actually talking about sex because we were studying the Book of Song of Solomon. Now, this was just too much for this bloke. I mean, first, church in a pub. Second, a church talking about sex. And he just couldn't grasp it. And so he says to her, what do Christians know about sex? And, of course, that's the assumption, isn't it? The assumption is that Christians can't know anything about sex because of the narrowness of our experience. The Christian view is that sex is reserved for marriage, one man, one wife, for life, and everything outside of that is contrary to God's commands and his purposes for it. And so it's assumed that this means that Christians are just kind of rookies on all of this stuff. I mean, they've only ever done it with one person. So how could they know? How could they know anything about this? And, and added to this, Christians seem so weird about sex. They, they try to avoid it. They shut it down. They, they condemn it as wrong so often, or at least give off the impression that it's too fun to be right. And yet... Christians should actually know plenty about this subject, or at least enough, because we have the Bible. That's right. God's Word tells us everything we need to know, really, about sex. It tells us where it comes from, uh, why God has given it to it, what, given it to us, and what the purpose of it is, what it, what it means for us, and it celebrates sex, never in a glib or gratuitous or flippant way. No, no, it exalts it for us as something profound and beautiful and important. And yet, despite all this, Christians still have a habit of getting it wrong. We should know what God thinks. We've got all the knowledge that we need, but our thinking is often awry. And this has real practical implications for people in their lives 
even in their emotions, and it can, in fact, hurt people. And I think that we see that in today's passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 marks the beginning of a new section in the letter, a hugely practical section that sees Paul respond to the specific questions of this church. Remember, this is a a two-way correspondence between Paul and the Christians of Corinth. He'd he'd written to them previously, and then they'd written back to him, and now he's writing to them once more, responding to some of the questions that they've given him. And so we'll see in these passages that he starts a lot of sections saying, now concerning this or concerning that... And today we see the first of this in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's really important to note that there are quotation marks in here because for a long time this was misunderstood, I think. Uh, You see, 1 Corinthians was originally written in Greek and ancient Greek doesn't have, didn't have quotation marks. And that meant that a lot of people thought that Paul was saying this, that Paul was saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they thought that Paul was basically advocating for abstinence, telling the Christians of Corinth that they should avoid sex. And that has made a lot of Christians wary of sex. They're a bit embarrassed by their desires. You see, they have them, but they feel like they need to subdue them. Yes, you can have sex within marriage, but you almost need to to minimize that, to kind of uh, keep it just for procreation and, and nothing else. But I don't think Paul is actually saying that. I think he's quoting the Corinthians and then going on to correct them. You see, he goes on to say that a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, have conjugal rights which their spouse must honour. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. He's saying this is something that it's important that your partner is owed, your spouse is owed this. Indeed, in verse 5, he says that to do otherwise is to deprive one another. The language there actually means something like defrauding. So Craig Blomberg, the commentator, says it's, it's like cheating someone else out of what is properly his or hers. That's very strong language. So he's very strong on this. Not only uh, is sex something that is okay, it's actually something that is uh, a right for God's people within marriage. Your husband, your wife uh, has a right to this pleasure, to this uh, blessing that God offers us. And yet it's fascinating that there would be a time where people might defraud their spouse out of this, deprive their spouse. This was a very real issue in Corinth, but I've actually noticed that it's a very real issue in our time as well. That's what I want to talk about today. You see, my wife and I have been married for for 10 years, and I remember doing marriage prep with Guy and Vanessa Mason in the months leading up to our wedding. Uh, we did a bunch of sessions with them, and one of them uh, they called Great Expectations, uh, kind of helping us think through uh, what life was going to be like for us in marriage. And I remember them asking, so how often do you think you're going to do it? And we just kind of looked at each other, and we said, oh, I suppose a few times a week. And then Guy and Vanessa sort of smiled knowingly at each other and and I remember their expressions because I know Ivana and I have given the same expression when we've had couples do pre-marriage prep with us. Uh, we've done marriage prep with lots of couples and we ask them the same question because we think it's really important to be clear on expectations. I think it's important to note that 
reality actually often falls short of people's expectations. People often expect that sex will be easy and fun, that it's something that they'll want to do all of the time. But the reality is often very different. I actually knew a couple that weren't able to consummate their marriage uh, until sometime after their uh, honeymoon. I knew another couple who I think weren't able to do that for a full year. And so often lots of people who get married, uh, their expectations prove way out of whack. And, and we have this thing where sex is designed as this incredibly unifying experience that draws a husband and a wife together, and yet often it can tear them apart. It becomes a point of conflict and tension. It causes great frustration and hurt. And today I want to explore that with you. First of all, I want to suggest that there's a bunch of reasons why this might happen. For the people in Corinth, it was happening because one or two of the people in the marriage were, felt a bit iffy about sex. And I think Christians are often experience this, particularly early on in their marriage. They've been warned so much about sexual sin while they were single or while they were dating. They've tried so hard to be pure. And so it can be very hard within marriage to just let that all go, uh, to just suddenly go from park to fifth gear. Like it's, it's a big adjustment. It still feels like there's blocks in the way for them. There's this kind of ingrained sense that this is forbidden, or at the very least, it's a sense perhaps that it's not fully holy, that it's God is just giving a concession to our passions, but nothing more. Uh, maybe he's just trying to prevent marital unfaithfulness so that we can uh, just be, do the right thing. And he kind of gives this as a concession so that we don't get into mischief. Or perhaps there's just this underlying suspicion of God. I mean, people experience it and they're having so much fun with that and they think, surely this can't be good. I mean, surely God wouldn't let me have something this fun. But I think that's a very wrong view of God that we actually need to repent of. You see, the Bible celebrates sex and invites married people to embrace it. We don't want this weird irony, you see. We assume that it's God who would deprive people of sex. But actually, often, it's Christians who deprive themselves of something good that God has offered them. But it's not just faulty theology that comes between people and prevents them and gives them tension and difficulty in the realm of, uh, of this stuff. Uh, there's lots of other reasons as well. Sometimes there's um, a brokenness in the relationship, conflict between the two people, which makes it impossible to come towards each other. The thought of it is just, no way, I can't do that. Sometimes it can become quite deliberate. Now, one person chooses to deprive their spouse, chooses to punish the other person. They're annoyed, they're frustrated, so they hold out on them. This is their way of, of telling them that they're frustrated. Sometimes it's just because life gets in the way when you're when you've got young kids, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're worn out. If you're a mum, you've probably had a, a child draped all over you and the last thing you need is more physical contact. Other times, though, it, it just kind of fades in importance. Marriage becomes a friendship, a partnership. Your spouse becomes a colleague in the work of raising a family, all of which is important and, and great, but God still wants us to have something more. He wants us to have some of the fire of marriage as well. It's really important. See, marriage is a friendship, but it's also more than a friendship. It's something more profound than that, something which sex both symbolizes and solidifies. 
And I think it's really important for us to go into those things because I think there's, there's actually very deep reasons for why people might deprive the other person of sex or why we might be reluctant to do that. I think it goes right to the heart of marriage itself and how marriage was set up. You see how marriage was set up in the book of Genesis with the very first married couple, Adam and Eve. We read in Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just look at what we're seeing in this passage. Two people becoming one person, one new thing. One new identity. They take on this new identity and it's a shared identity. As Jesus explains in Mark 10, they are no longer two but one flesh. They've moved beyond themselves, outside themselves. They've given themselves to each other to serve and love and honour and respect each other. And sex expresses this new reality. They were, it's a physical expression of this. But note to what it's built on. This wonderful verse, verse 25, they were both naked and were not ashamed. They're they're physically naked because they are spiritually and emotionally uh, naked. And then the physical act takes them deeper spiritually and emotionally. That's the picture that God offers us in the Bible. And it points to the reason God gave sex to us. It symbolizes and solidifies marriage. It symbolizes the oneness of marriage, and then it solidifies that. It strengthens that as we go forward. It's a beautiful picture. And yet, I think it's also a tragic picture. You see, that's the picture of marriage and relationships before the fall. But we live after the fall. And do you remember what happened as soon as Adam and Eve sinned? Genesis 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The very moment they disobeyed God, they felt their nakedness before each other. They felt, they sensed this. They felt ashamed. And suddenly, where before they could trust each other, immediately... They no longer feel able to do that. They don't feel comfortable with each other. They were one, but suddenly there is something that might tear them apart. And every marriage since the first marriage has faced this, this this strange paradox, this desire to be close, the desire to have that intimacy, but the difficulty of it, the shame that gets in the way. We have this instinct that this is what we're, we're supposed to do within marriage, but we face the challenge of making it a reality. When two married people come face to face towards each other, they feel their nakedness and their shame. They, they feel their nakedness, their embarrassment perhaps about their body or what, what you look like, a sense of inadequacy or awkwardness. Oh, I'm no good at this. Or this deeper question of, will this person still love me if they know everything about me, if I'm completely vulnerable to them? And they feel the shame of their sin as well, the, the secret habit of pornography, perhaps, or the lust of their eyes, the confusion of emotional unfaithfulness with someone else, the, the regret of past relationships that took went too far, or you gave yourself to someone else, or just the, the frustration or the sense of guilt if you're assessing the other person and, and, and unhappy with them. And so sex is this beautiful thing. But it's also this profound thing that, that and 
whenever we face each other, we feel all of the, the difficulty of that sometimes. And so for some people, it's easier to just kind of run away from it. But if we keep doing that, we actually end up depriving our spouse of what they need. Now, in the popular imagination, this is usually a guy thing. You know, it's usually assumed that it's the man who needs and wants sex more than the woman, that there's whole kind of sitcoms that seem to be based around that the sole goal of the man is to convince his wife that he's not repulsive. But in ministry, I've actually counseled plenty of couples where the opposite was true. Uh, where it's the wife who feels neglected and underappreciated. Now, either way, whether it's the man or the woman, it's a problem uh, because it leaves the spouse vulnerable, vulnerable to frustration, to resentment and to temptation. That's what Paul says here. Verse 2, it's important to be married because of the temptation to sexual immorality. In verse 9, people can burn with passion. And so he's very direct to married people. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is being very realistic here. People have needs and if they're not met by their spouse they may be tempted to look elsewhere they may look to pornography i don't just mean men here 30 percent of pornography users are women apparently Uh, they might develop an emotional attachment to someone else and and i don't just mean women here men are just as likely to flirt with someone other than their wife or it might even go to the point where your spouse begins something physical with someone else now Paul is not for a moment condoning or accepting this. Just because someone's frustrated doesn't make it right to act out of that. This is temptation and a temptation to sin. And a temptation is something that a married person can and should withstand. But he's also saying that this temptation is something that the spouse can work to reduce. Do not deprive one another, he says. Come together again. I think the attitude that he he wants us to have is encapsulated in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, we immediately get nervous about a statement like this because we can imagine someone abusing this. Your body belongs to me, so you must satisfy me. But Paul doesn't allow for that. You see, this is mutual. The wife belongs to the husband, but the husband also belongs to the wife. You're one with each other, and so you kind of belong to each other. And you don't want to abuse yourself. You've be, two have become one. This is your new identity, and you don't want to wreck that in any kind of way. And so that means that the emphasis turns from not from it turns from what we could take from the other person to what we can give, to how we can serve and bless and provide for the other person. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It actually points us to the gospel, where Jesus gives up himself for us. Of course, the gospel is where we find the resources to truly approach sex in the right way. God's truth explains why we have sex, why God has given it to us. It also explains why it's difficult and why it can be broken. But it also shows us how it can be fixed. And it comes in the gospel. 
a married couple face each other and they feel their nakedness and their shame. But it's also that nakedness and shame can be dealt with by Jesus. God has seen our nakedness, the nakedness of our sin, our regret and our evil, but he's dealt with it. We feel ashamed before God because we fall short of his glory. But then God deals with that as well. And you see this in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, don't you? When Adam and Eve sinned, they felt their nakedness and were told that the first thing they did was that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That was kind of their instinct. They had to do it. But then later on in the same passage, we read in verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they'd kind of done their own thing, but then God gives them proper clothes. And that feels so symbolic to me. As soon as Adam and Eve felt their nakedness, they tried to clothe themselves, to fix themselves up. And it's the same with us. We, we feel our nakedness and our shame, and so we try to clothe ourselves. We, we want to make ourselves more beautiful, more desirable, or we, we kind of stuff everything down and try to project an image of strength and confidence. We, we just try to fix ourselves up, but none of that actually works. We actually need God to deal with that. We need God to give us new clothes. We need him to heal us and to set us free. And of course, that's what he does through Jesus. First of all, he does that in salvation. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then he deals with us continually uncovering the hurt within us or the shame and dealing with that, easing our fears, clothing and transforming us over life. So how does a husband and a wife learn to have sex according to God's plan? Well, it's about learning the gospel, learning the gospel for ourselves, taking our nakedness and our shame and bringing it to God and then finding his clothing. And then we show that and teach that to each other, giving rather than taking, offering rather than withholding, forgiving rather than punishing, serving rather than depriving, coming together rather than staying apart. How about we pray? Father God, we want to thank you for the gift of marriage and I want to pray for the marriages in our church. Lord, we ask that they might be kept strong, that they might be places where the gospel is experienced and expressed. I pray in particular in the area of sex, that that might be a thing that unites us and brings us together uh, rather than tearing us apart. We thank you for your goal, your plan, your vision, your design. Help us to trust you and to walk in that and heal our hurts, take away our shame. Thank you that you do that in Jesus May your Holy Spirit continue to do that in our lives day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, when we started City on a Hill West, I felt like marriages were going to be one of our key portfolios of ministry because uh, it's in marriage that we experience and express the gospel in some profound ways. And I've seen right through our six years as a church that this is one of the key things that it keeps coming back to. This is what so much of ministry is about and so much of my own faith and life is about. So if, if you've got questions or you just need support in your marriage, 
I want you to come and speak to me in Nirvana. I'd love you to do that. Uh, this is something that we care about. So if you want to talk about stuff, please feel free to do that. I also want to say as well, there'll be people watching and listening who are single. And perhaps this week is confronting or difficult or frustrating or whatever it is. Uh, I really hope that we can minister to you. Next week, we're going to be speaking about singleness. And I pray that that's a real blessing to you as well. But also pray that today is a helpful um, sense of reality for you, of what it can be like within marriage. It's difficult at times, but it's also a good thing. And so I pray that that's a blessing for you too. All right, to the Hill West, God bless and have an awesome week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.